sa la verità ma o ma o c'è chi riesce a sopportar ma o ma o sono tutti in guerra e non si sa che cosa mai succederà ma o ma o del mondo cosa ne sarà ma o ma o se tu lo sai dicelo un po' ma live yeah this is some live shit here we're here welcome to episode two of two or three things i know a podcast about film and other things sometimes if we feel like it we're talking today about three films by my favorite filmmaker rainer Werner fassbinder we're talking about the marriage of maria braun we're talking about lola and we're talking about veronica voss his trilogy of films about women in post-war germany following the economic miracle I should say, like, for comparison's sake, I'm like a Fassbender movie. I know a little bit, mostly through Dante. Before Dante and I met, I had seen, like, one Fassbender movie. And it was the one that Mark Fisher wrote about? Yeah, 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 yeah. It was World on a Wire. I would say it was not a very good introduction to his work. I really liked it, but it was not, like, it's not like a melodrama. It's not, like, it's not what people would regard as, like, archetypally a kind of Fassbender film. It's a very good movie. The thing with World on a Wire is that it's showing that he can work well even outside of what he's associated with. But it also, at the same time, doesn't give that much of a feel for, like, him ideologically. Yeah, like, you don't get a sense of, okay, what is this guy's, like, preoccupations? What are the... You certainly get a good visual sense of who he is as a filmmaker. And, like, it's shot on gorgeous 16mm. As a, as a beginner, I feel like this week, where I watched all three of the BRD trilogy, really has given me a much greater sense of, okay, this is what Fassbender is. To the point where, like, if someone asked me, and no one should ask me this, oh, where would you start with Fassbender? I probably would say, oh, these films are kind of good. They seem very, like, foundational, even though they're the last couple of films he made, basically. They're in his late period. I feel like he has two sort of periods that are accessible and of his late period these are far and away the most accessible films like i wouldn't recommend someone start with something like the third generation or in a year of 13 moons but i can conceivably recommend someone start with the marriage of maria braun i feel like maria braun is good even if you don't know a lot about german history or whatever like i feel like it's relatively self-explanatory which i think is another barrier for a lot of european filmmakers a lot of the time more so with like asian filmmakers or african filmmakers or whatever there's a degree of like separation you're living in like north america like both of us do where for a lot of people they don't really know any of the history of it so it can be kind of incomprehensible at points german history is not exactly like this obscure thing yeah 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 i'm, I'm saying i'm saying like generally speaking like i'm saying this probably applies more to like lola or like the marriage of maria braun is like right after the world war and like People fucking know what Germany was up to in World War II. This is kind of a pet theory of mine with regards to like international filmmaking when it usually gets imported to like North America. The stuff that works is usually the stuff that's like relatively legible or already kind of stylistically influenced by American filmmaking. Which Fassbinder, to be fair, at this point in his career certainly was. I mean, he always was to an extent. 
in 71, he discovered Cirque, and that kind of changed the whole trajectory of his films. Because if you watch basically anything he made before The Merchant of Four Seasons, it's, like, wildly different. Like, there's only a couple of color films in there, and a lot of them are shot in this, like, style that a lot of people admittedly find very off-putting, where it's basically, like, one master shot... There's very little, like, editing in any given scene. Brechtian is a word that's thrown a lot to describe it. There's Brechtian to be, like, alienating. A very, like, low-budget, avant-garde, sort of French New Wave-ish. Oh, yeah, very influenced by the French New Wave. Like, the opening of Love is Cold Within Death, it's literally got, like, a dedication to Eric Romare and Claude Chabral and Straub Poulet. I think that's probably part of the reason why those films would resonate less with, like, an English audience would be at least a normal English audience, versus I feel like you could show basically anyone Maria Braun and they would, like, get the gist. Well, other than maybe Ollie Fury's The Soul, I think certainly when it came out, The Marriage of Maria Braun was Fassbinder's most commercially successful film. Like, it was a huge festival hit. It was huge in New York. It made money, very notably, also. Yeah, it was one of Fassbinder's first films to... Well, not first films to make money, but... Actually, it kind of was, or at least make that amount of money. From the little bit of reading, you can find that, like, most of, like, new German cinema was basically propped up by, like, state funding or, like, TV or whatever. Well, when you look at Fassbinder's TV films, a lot of them are very good. Like, World on a Wire is a TV film. Yeah, it's a TV movie. It's fucking great. It's unreal. Martha's a TV film. Uh, Berlin Alexanderplatz is a tv production like it did not show in theaters it straight up aired on television which is so insane yeah like imagine just like flicking through the tv and like chancing upon like world on a wire or something like that unreal it's insane we could probably start actually talking about the, the specific movies we talked about instead of talking around them so the marriage of maria braun the premise is maria gets married to herman braun at the end of world war ii and then her husband disappears the day after they get married and she's kind of forced to fend for herself and she gets a job as like a waitress at a bar for American soldiers and she meets this big muscular black guy which is one of Fassbinder's other preoccupations and they begin to have an affair but then lo and behold her husband returns from the war and she flips and kills the guy she's sleeping with her husband takes the rap for it and goes to jail and then she has to kind of work to salvage some sort of a career she has to girl boss her way out of it she then after seeing her husband goes on the train and she kind of sneaks her way into the first class bit one of the funniest things is when she's just like screaming the the kid's name like oh lenny 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 and she's that's literally like an Elaine from Seinfeld thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's screaming, Lenny, 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 Lenny. And then she like gets in and then the, the train uh, conductor says like, oh, there are no little girls on this. And she says, no, Lenny's a boy. <laughs> All three of these movies in a way are about girl bossing your way through situations. Yeah, they're all kind of about the position of women in post-war German life. They all have their own, despite the fact that they're all kind of in very different situations, like socially and politically and all that. Their lives are all thrown into chaos by the end of the war and kind of have to like fend for themselves, basically, in kind of post-war West German capitalism. 
Maria Braun, like, it's, she's literally a girl boss. Like, she's a girl who is the boss. Yeah, like, she works her way from being the translator interpreter uh, to basically being, like, one of the three people in charge of the, the company. Yeah, she makes her way up to the top. She makes money. One thing, one of Fassbinder's other preoccupations, a much less questionable one is the relationship between like love and money and happiness you kind of see two or more of these things in basically any of his movies yeah across all these movies there's kind of a conflict that's set up between viewing life as sort of purely transactional and viewing life as almost like sentimentally as possible and what was reoccurring throughout all three of these films is all of the women in the films the lead women are just basically not afforded the ability to be kind of sentimental about existence like they all basically learn that they can't be because of their life circumstances yeah love in fassbinder and this is not exclusive at all to this trilogy is very transactional obviously when you look at fox and his friends which is so good if you haven't seen fox and his friends i haven't I, I will watch it like immediately probably tonight if you haven't seen fox and his friends just stop listening to this podcast and go watch fox and his friends you'll get a better feel for fassbender from watching fox and his friends that's another really obvious love is financially transactional movie but if it's not financially transactional yeah it's emotionally transactional and I feel like in all three of these movies, they're also really good, like, love is transactional type movies. Yeah. To go back to Godard, they're the kind of we are all prostitutes type theme that you see a lot in kind of, like, post-World War II, like, writing, you know, in cinema. I mean, one of Fassbinder's favorite films, that's not actually in his list of top ten favorites that he has in Anarchy of the Imagination, but, like, a film that he will frequently cite as a favorite in, like, interviews or when he's asked about his favorite films is Viva Seville by Godard, which is, you know, also... I mean, it's it's about how love is transactional. Yeah, it's about how, like, it's not just transactional for everyone either. There's, like, the particular circumstances sort of render it transactional, where at the beginning of the film in, like, Maria Braun, she seems to have this real sense of, like, sentimentality about the world, about her husband, about her existence. And she's like, my husband's going to come back. I just know it. I love him and he's going to come back. Yeah, but by the end of the film, she's very hardened. She's very, like, incapable of genuine emotion. She's like, has the outbursts at her mother and her secretary and all that. And she doesn't seem to have a real grasp. Sort of a non-transactional sort of mode of existence. Yeah, she's, like, so caught up in, like, wanting to build this financial empire of sorts and like you know get a nice house for her husband that by the time her husband comes back it's like well what do i do now they've known each other for like as the husband says like three weeks and yet she's built up this kind of elaborate she sacrificed like everything for him to try to build this life for him and a life that he also basically refuses a life that he he doesn't want to be like a subject of charity to her yeah he, like he just fucks off and goes to canada yeah he wants to he doesn't like the idea of his wife 
wife being the one who's like in control and has all the money that seemingly violates the sort of very strict gender norms of say Nazi society that were that you know after the war are like increasingly kind of in flux and I think that's something also that plays in with the murder she has this relationship with Mr. Bill that she loves and she's very tender towards him but then like the moment the husband returns she just like kills him it's the kind of the, the sort of strict kind of racial hierarchy of Nazi society sort of returns almost when the husband returns you know to me the most tender moments in the film are the moments where after maria meets bill she's like teaching him bits of german and he's teaching her bits of english very sentimental it's like it's sweet almost yeah, yeah, like, those bits are honestly just genuinely really nice. It reminds me a bit of uh, The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, where you have Anton Valbrook, like, slowly learning bits of English through his friendship with, with the guy. And obviously the sort of language barrier also plays up in the trial. She says something to the effect of, I love my husband. I, I'm trying to remember the specific word she uses to refer to Bill, but it's not love. It's like, I have affection for it. And this is then translated by the translator as love and love. Yeah, there's this sort of cultural barrier type thing that's going on. And she also kind of throughout the film, and probably in part because of Bill, learns how to sort of manipulate that cultural barrier. Learns how to, like she changes the things that people are saying when doing the translations in her job. So she, they say things that are better and she can like make sure they get the deal. Like that's her kind of learning to manipulate this language sort of for her own interest. Like even language itself is kind of like a commodity, commoditized. It's a tool to use everything to her. And this is kind of just his general sort of statement under capitalism. This is what Fassbinder, I feel like, is getting at he's kind of saying that like under capitalism there's no sort of genuine existence whatsoever everything just becomes a tool to survive yeah like there isn't there isn't a sort of non-transactional relationship that's sort of idealized by a lot of people obviously like a lot of people want to believe that you know they they could be in some kind of like emotionally perfect relationship that fulfills them but particularly especially for women in society a lot of their relationships end up being dependency on the men around. And this film in particular is basically about her, basically through trying to appease her husband, basically becoming the dominant one. Like she is kind of thrust into the situation where she has to make a life for the two of them and kind of exist outside of a normal gender norm. Like she can't be the docile housewife. And then by doing this, her husband kind of loses interest in her as she tries to, like, create a life for them. There's this great quote by Fassbender, which I, I really should have got my copy of Anarchy of the Imagination out before I recorded this. It's something to the effect of love is the most insidious form of social repression, which I feel like... Yeah, that definitely plays into the... That just plays into basically everything in his filmography and everything about him as, like, a person... Yeah, like this love that we sort of view as this sort of sentimental free choice is actually this political form of, it's oppressive. It is, yeah, because it's just like everything else, just like money, just like language. It's a tool that under capitalism can be used to manipulate people. And that's what a lot of Fassbinder's films are about, especially as like melodramas, which... The Marriage of Maria Braun certainly is one. All three of these films certainly are. Yeah. Yeah, they're all very melodramatic. They're very, all very Cirque, yeah. Which is good. I should say 100% a good thing. And I think that's also like, these films came out at a really good time for that because 
in the 60s and 70s is when you sort of have the kind of broad critical reevaluation of the melodrama as like a form. Well, a lot of that, at least in Europe, like was sort of kickstarted by Fassbinder's writing on Cirque. Like that certainly wasn't the only thing. There was also like a French appreciation of it in the Cahiers du Cinéma. There's also a sort of feminist reevaluation of it at the same time. Oh, yeah, because that's when, like, feminism started. That's when Laura Mulvey threw the first brick at Stonewall. <sighs> the feminist reevaluation of the melodrama, sort of taking these things that were usually traditionally regarded as very trivial films for women and going, what if these are actually, you know, serious or have these genuine politics to them that is worth exploring. And from there, you can finally just acknowledge the craft of the melodrama. Yeah. Uh, yeah, on another level, like, the Cirque ones are Max Ophel's. Cirque's craft is incredible. I mean, Ophel's craft, you see that, like, in Scorsese, and actually, bringing it back to Fassbender, Michael Ballhaus, or I should say Michael Ballhaus, as it's pronounced in German, he was actually a family friend of Ophel's, or like his parents were. Oh, really? Yeah, so he was like on the set of Lola Montez, and that's kind of what inspired him to become a filmmaker. And then Lola Montez is one of Fassbinder's favorite films. Yeah, and to anyone who like the name Balhaus rings a vague bell, you might remember him. He's the guy who did the cinematography for like a bunch of later Scorsese, as you were kind of hinting at. Like, he did the cinematography for Goodfellas and The Departed and Gangs of New York. And, yeah. And also stuff like The Last Temptation of Christ. And like he, post Fassbender, goes on to do all these like movies with Scorsese and other English filmmakers. Yeah, he went to America after Fassbender died, although I should say that he did sever professional ties with Fassbender before Fassbender's death. I think The Marriage of Maria Braun was like the second last film he shot with Fassbender. And I think like the one thing that Maria Braun really works because it has a relatively straightforward arc to it, an arc of the start of the marriage and then there's the kind of decline that comes with the, the end of the war and her life falling apart and then it sort of arcs back up with the uh, meeting mr bill and then the husband returning and the murder and it being arced back down again and then just an arc in the second half of the film to a kind of becoming a successful businesswoman it's got a very clear two-act structure yeah you can very easily divide it into a first half and a second half a first half which is like a series of tragedies that sort of mold her and then the second half is like her sort of rising from the ashes from those tragedies and then because it's fassbender it ends in tragedy once again. It kind of ends the same way it starts with an explosion. Yeah, it renders everything that happened kind of meaningless almost. Like it goes, okay, so she did all this, but to what end ultimately? Like she finally meets her husband and uh, then immediately dies. And I guess the argument that some people have made is whether or not that death is deliberate on her part. Is it suicide or is it... An accident. Because like both are pretty disturbing in their own right i mean i feel like her just randomly dying is a lot more grim because like at least with suicide there's the intentional choice she makes to die yeah whereas with the randomness it's just she does all this for years fights out of the war to establish a kind of normal family unit and then the moment she achieves it it just becomes meaningless and fassbender is very 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 critical of the family most great filmmakers are and 
then with Fassbender, it kind of comes from his upbringing, which if he's to be believed in interviews, he never really had a childhood. His family, like his mother divorced when he was very young and got remarried to a man who did not like him. So he would just leave the house and spend a lot of the time at the cinema. And his mother like had all sorts of foreign workers staying in the house. Obviously that also influenced him a lot when you look at like Kotzelmasher or more famously Ollie Fury's The Soul. Yeah, that's also the structure of the family is also the main source of kind of conflict in the melodrama. Yeah, so it all kind of comes together nicely that he ended up becoming a melodramatic filmmaker. Because most good melodramas revolve around a sort of breakdown of the family unit, as do a lot of genres of film, but melodramas in particular, a lot of them revolve around these sort of collapsing family units. Or I think it's something like The Earrings of Madame de or something like that, where it's like these kind of old loveless marriages and people trying to escape. There's like two sort of, well, there's more than two, but two types of melodramas. They're either about like people who are in the upper class and who are unhappy or people who aspire to be in the upper class and then subsequently become unhappy. Yeah, the sort of reoccurring thrust across the genre is the sort of bourgeois complex sadness effectively that like they acquire all this like material wealth and then it's actually meaningless. And that's literally like what the end of Maria Braun is. Yeah. She's in this gorgeous house that she girl bossed her way into and she like both emotionally and literally prostituted herself for and then it's just nothing like she's in a drunken haze like just totally feeling nothing and then boom it just blows up she dies and in a very grim way it's almost a happy ending in the sense that she's finally free yeah she's free from the cycle of capitalism effectively she doesn't need to anymore like work <laughs> basically she's spending like basically all her time working she's spending all this time thinking about it and the other thing that i sort of regard as interesting about the film and this is another theme that i think comes up especially in lola is a sort of personal versus public distinction in the film and i think of this with her relationship with willie especially this becomes particularly clear is where she's doing the union contract negotiation and she's like extremely fierce and she's extremely rude and then the moment the the cameras stop rolling the moment they're gone she's like oh do you want to go get a drink with me how's everything da, 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 da. the moment she kind of leaves the world of capitalism or all that she just doesn't give a shit anymore which i think is kind of funny an agent of the working class by night yeah the Madihara of the economic miracle that is such a great line yeah because it sort of highlights that she doesn't view everything as transactional, even at that point in the film. But she's immediately capable of turning off the sort of transactional brain when it kind of suits her. Yeah, you kind of build up two separate identities. And at a certain point, it's like, where's the line drawn between them? That's something I kind of have a lot of trouble with, with like working regular jobs. It's like, I just have this existential crisis of like, who am I? If that makes any sense. Yeah, like if you've ever worked like a customer service job, that especially becomes really clear. The much stigmatized but basically analytically correct concept of emotional labor comes into it, where you're like putting in all this effort to construct a particular persona, and then it oftentimes becomes sort of hard to turn off that kind of persona. If people say the sort of things to you when you're doing like customer service work or something like that in your personal life, you would just tell them to fuck off, right? Like, <laughs> but you kind of develop a sort of docility through work a lot of the time, and you have to conform 
conform to a particular set of expectations, even if they're not ones you particularly like. Yeah, yeah. And that's something that's sort of hard to convey a lot of the time. And I think it's something that Fassbender conveys very well, is that these characters are basically shifting between different modes of existence. And it is very difficult for them. But someone like Maria, who through all the, the trauma and strife and all that, is basically capable of doing it very well. She can like jump between being the, the agent of capitalism and go and be an agent of the working class without much of a conflict. Yeah, I feel like in Lola and much more literally in Veronica Voss, the same sort of thing happens with Lola. She's a mother and like a lover of several people, but she's also got like this identity as like a cabaret singer. Yeah, and she kind of maintains a difference. She maintains basically separate lives or at least tries to. So as does a ton of characters in Lola, obviously. Yeah, like you have Armin Muller-Stahl of Von Baum, who's on the one hand in love with Lola, but on the other hand, absolutely disgusted with like the immorality of it all, of her being a cabaret singer slash prostitute. Or someone like Eslin, who is on the one hand this like leftist figure, he describes himself as an anti-revolutionary humanist or whatever the, the term is that he likes, but at the end of the day, he still works at the cabaret. And that's one thing that inspires the shock of Von Baum when he finally, you know, gets to the cabaret, is he sees that all these people who he views of as these kind of principled, moral people, all basically doing the same thing, and they're all, at the end of the day, subjects of capital. Yeah. We're getting ahead of ourselves, but it does kind of, the themes repeat themselves across these three films. That's sort of, it doesn't really matter what you're through these sort of systems of interpersonal domination. It doesn't really matter what you think anymore. You just kind of have to do it. And at some point, the doing it sort of just becomes your identity and you become sort of alienated from any kind of anything outside of trading and transactional being, right? Yeah. So you could view the ending, as you said, as a sort of happy ending, as a sort of, she's finally has a release from the endless cycle of capital capitalism from the hamster wheel of system she finally has this like moment outside of it yeah she's like finally free and death in Fossbinder films i feel like very frequently feels like that it's a sort of on the one hand they're dead but on the other hand they're free yeah like there's finally a moment where they finally are done being manipulated or being forced to manipulate just to get by and being forced to basically like forget their conscience forget everything telling them that this is wrong yeah while in lola she doesn't even get that release she's just lola has a really grim ending when you think about it yeah all three of these films have kind of grim endings but lola like kind of sinks in as grim the more you think about it but one thing with maria Braun to probably end on is the use of radio in the film i think it's very brilliant the sound effects and the sort of sound designs these very once again very brechtian sound design choices that are sort of very un realistic in some sense but they do a very good job like her death being at the same time with the radio playing in the background with the the ending of the world cut that's just like oh my gosh that is so good that's genius that's yeah that's pure cocaine excellence or before that you have all of the bits where you just hear like finance you hear like ministers talking about how they won't rearm move 
move forward a couple years in the plot and those same ministers are talking about how they need to make a West German army. You have all these outside things that are sort of slowly creeping in. Or in the beginning, you have the guy playing the German national anthem on the accordion. You have all these like grim background fodder sort of throughout the whole film. And that's, that's why I think the film is interesting. And also there's a lot of shots in it that are just gorgeous. Like the bit where she's waiting outside the train and the camera's just like following her. But you also keep losing her sort of, you know, as the camera is moving around. Like you keep focusing on other people and then it keeps kind of moving back towards her. It really does convey a sort of actual sense of like being lost. I mean, Ballhouse is probably my favorite cinematographer. Although I do feel like in a lot of ways, this is the least visually interesting of the trilogy. Yeah. Because a lot of the really interesting camera stuff is less in the look of the film and more in the movement of the camera, which, of course, that's kind of what Ballhouse does. Like, when you think about what makes the cinematography in Goodfellas so good, like, people don't talk about the colors in Goodfellas, which isn't to say they're bad. It's just what's notable in Goodfellas, they're thinking about, like, those three-minute-long tracking shots. They're thinking about the sense of movement. I mean, that's kind of what the Ballhausian touch is. It's the sense of movement. And then... And I think it also gives this film probably the biggest sense of realism. Yeah, yeah. I, I admit that a lot of Lola, not so much Veronica Voss, but a lot of Lola, the look is just so intoxicating that I just find so much of the film goes over my head because I'm just so caught up in... That's something I find with a lot of, like late Fassbender, not so much with Veronica Voss, because like black and white, it's stunning and it's gorgeous, but it is something that you will have probably seen before. Certainly not that beautifully, but like... It's a noirish color palette. Like, I don't think I've ever seen a film like Lola visually. Yeah, like Lola, just you get so caught up in how it looks, or at least... Maybe I'm just a dumb baby, but, like, it's just so intoxicating. And I think that might be why it's regarded as the weakest of the trilogy, because people sort of cognitively... It's just so visually stunning that, like, people are just caught up in that. That's like a lot of films, I think, where... That are actually, you know, that have a lot going on under the surface. Like, I think Lola is a very complicated movie. It is very complex, and it goes over my dumb baby head. I think it's easy with Lola to sort of neglect that because it's so pretty. This is going to be a, maybe a stupid comparison. It's sort of like the way you weird people talk about like the virgin suicides or stuff like that. Or a lot of the Sofia Coppola movies, which are like actually very like formally complicated and scripted and have a lot going on in them. But because they're so like, for lack of a better term, feminine in their presentation, that tends to go over people's head. I think something similar going on with Lola, where because the film is so lush and technicolor and it's easy to go, oh, this is just kind of like candy. This isn't actually that comp. You could very easily read it as a relatively straightforward melodrama. Yeah. Basically, what's interesting is basically everything shot with Fassbinder by Xaver Schwarzenberger, who was the cinematographer who replaced Ballhouse as Fassbinder's go-to near the end of his career, starting with Berlin Alexander Platz. He shot four films... Well, well, one television thing and three films with Fassbinder. He shot Lola, he shot Veronica Voss, he shot Quarrel, and he shot Fassbinder's Berlin Alexanderplatz. And all three of those have, like, these insane colors, or all four of those have these insane colors. 
they all look gorgeous. And Lola is just such a beautiful looking movie. Like every scene is so perfectly colored and perfectly lit. Like you get these beautiful kind of bright primaries that just pop when you're looking at it. And there's one shot in particular that I want to talk about little bit i actually like pulled up a, a google image of this shot it's a shot where they're in the where von bon and lola are in the car and on the one hand lola is kind of cast in this pink and von bon is cast in this blue it's maybe one of my favorite shots in the whole movie and it does a really good job i think of there's a obviously like a sort of gendery reading of that that lola is cast in this sort of pink femininity and von bon is in blue but I would also probably argue that more than that, it's also conveying a sort of difference in almost sensibility between the characters. On the one hand, you have the, the whole film is sort of about a conflict between blue and red, if that makes any sense. Like on the one hand, on the one hand, you have like the sort of red pinkish hues of capitalism for <laughs> that um, are very like intoxicating and very seductive. And then on the other hand, you have the kind of blue colder almost moralism of someone like von Baum, who views himself as like a good liberal bureaucrat he wants to do right by all these people he wants to follow the rules as he says in the film if you don't believe in the possibility of revolution and you're a humanist you have to contend with the vultures not the vultures the the birds of prey you have to contend with the birds of prey and that's sort of what he views himself as doing and i think throughout the film what ends up happening is he views that as increasingly impossible you can't be this kind of morally neutral agent of the state just doing right because there's so many forces that exist sort of beyond you that are going to push you into a particular direction like when he goes finally goes to the cabaret the kind of charade is sort of revealed that beneath this sort of economic miracle there's all of this corruption and exploitation that is just sort of invisible to him and obviously that's kind of what drives him to become kind of a radical in the last bit of the film yeah like not and also just not having not being able to have lola that, that, that radicalizes him yeah like not and also just not having not being able to have lola yeah i mean it's based off of very loosely which i was planning on reading but i couldn't get a copy of it Professor Unrot by Heinrich Mann, and that's also the basis for The Blue Angel by Joseph von Sternberg, and this is kind of like the Blue Angel sort of updated to, like, the 50s instead of, I think, the 30s. Yeah, it's 1930s. Or the, I guess, 20s is when it takes place. The the film th does a really good job of making these kind of building disputes seem very interesting. One of my favorite bits, actually, is when Von Baum goes to the journalist and he's showing him all the papers. And the, the journalist is like, oh, these are just normal building contracts. And Von Baum's reaction is like, exactly, exactly. And he's like, you're neglecting this sort of normal exploitation of the system. In the, the sort of Monty Python joke of the, the violence inherent in the system. But I mean, the violence is inherent in the system. The violence is inherent in the system, most definitely. It's, it's sort of a cliche, but also he's right in this moment where he's telling this journalist that like, oh, I, I know all these kind of like dark, seedy, underbelly stuff going on to uh, like bend the rules and all that. But it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, through marrying Lola, who is... Um, who he's basically given Lola. 
Yeah, and it's it's really interesting to me how Lola herself has almost no autonomy in this marriage. Lola has no autonomy in the film, basically. Like, she doesn't really... Does she even love Bomb Bomb? Like, she's... She has a kid with uh, Shukert, the funny fat guy, but it's like she's still prostituting herself. And Shukert is totally fine with this. He even encourages it, if anything. And Shukert also, more than anyone else, seems basically aware of the, the sort of private v. public thing that we were talking about earlier. Because, you know, when there's the, the protest going on, the, the anti-rearmament protest, he gives them money after going to the church. He is basically aware that none of this actually matters. He doesn't have like a particular moral call either towards the church or towards the peace protests, but he just wants to have his influence held. He doesn't really care about like the sort of moral implications of it, you know? He just wants power, basically. <laughs> and he wants to just negotiate with those who have power. Power of yeah, Lola. And that's his relationship with Lola. And that's one thing that Eslin, Eslin basically tries to buy Lola effectively. And that one bit. And Shukert keeps being like, oh yeah, you know, I can just spend more money than you. And he just keeps putting down more dollar bills and all that. Like, in all these bits in the film, it's sort of, whereas Maria Braun is a very active character within the plot, Lola is basically consigned away from that. Like, Maria Braun would be, you know, in the rooms doing the building contracts and shit, whereas Lola is sectioned off. And she keeps kind of trying to break out of that through Von Baum, but it doesn't really happen ever. And then by the time that Veronica Voss comes around, she's just totally passive. Like, there's no hiding it. Yeah, across the three films, you could say there's like an increasing lack of autonomy for the female characters. Yeah, it's like Lola almost, she tries to give herself the illusion of autonomy, while Veronica doesn't even have that. Yeah, and then Maria basically fights for and attains some level of autonomy, but at the cost of any sense of self. For the record, Veronica Voss is my favorite of the three films, I should say. I should say, I think Lola or Veronica Voss were the ones I enjoyed the most. I did like Maria Braun quite a bit. None of them are bad films. Yeah, they're all very good movies, but... Veronica Voss is the one that I'm the most, like, enthusiastic about. Like, I know I'll have the most to say about Veronica Voss because it's, to me, like, just one of the most beautiful and one of the most heartbreaking films ever made. It's such a kick in the pants. I, I feel like I'm gonna cry talking about it. Yeah, like, it's such a brutal movie. I think, like, they're all very good films. I think Veronica Voss is the one that I felt the most pain watching. I almost, like, I, I almost could not finish it. Like, I literally, and I'd seen it, like, thrice prior, but it's like, this is just, this is so painful to watch. I had to pause it a bunch of times just to, like, catch my breath and get some water um, while I was watching it. Because if I wasn't doing that, I would have been, like, emotionally exhausted, probably. Yeah, like, like I finished the film, and then I just, like, cried like while i was riding my bike lola for comparison's sake like i think lola's ending lola's a lot less visceral but it's probably almost as depressing if you like think about it for a while but like veronica voss is just like a, like a kick in the stomach like you're just there is no like like veronica voss is probably it's the only one in the trilogy that i'd consider to be like one of fassbender's absolute greatest films to be honest it's the one i connect with the most certainly yeah and it's also just gorgeous looking 
It has this very kind of old Hollywood aesthetics going on, where it's almost the whole film is very dreamlike. And I think that serves it, especially towards the ending of the film, where it does kind of become like an actual dream. Like everything feels a bit fake in Veronica Voss, but that doesn't like detract from the kind of emotional reality of it um, either, which is kind of an interesting sort of contradiction. It is just, it's so heartbreaking. I'm going to spend like half this episode just talking about Veronica Voss. It's impossible not to just be extremely moved by by that performance because it's just so it's so beautiful and so heartbreaking and horrifying and it's basically a horror movie is how I describe it like it feel like it has that very like the, the black and white sort of film noir expressionism to it it's almost like exaggerated though because like you go back and you watch the most obvious comparison Sunset Boulevard and for one thing the it's not nearly as, like, contrasted. Like, there are greys in Sunset Boulevard. There are no greys in Veronica Voss. Yeah. I've seen a lot of people online when they talk about Veronica Voss, they kind of summarize it as, like, German Sunset Boulevard. And while there isn't, like... There's not not merit to that comparison, but it's, like, it's more than just a take on Sunset Boulevard. It kind of uses Sunset Boulevard as a sort of jumping point for this story. It's like, it's clearly influenced by Sunset Boulevard and it clearly has its similarities with Sunset Boulevard, but I do think it's kind of a shallow comparison to just like write it off as being like that because it truly is its own beast. Like Sunset Boulevard is an incredible film, but it's it's not nearly as heart rendering. It's not as nihilistic, like. We haven't really talked about the plot of Veronica Voss. Yeah, yeah, we probably should talk about the plot, because presumably some of you haven't seen it. Oh, you should watch it. Like, I feel like if I were to tell people to watch one film from this, I would say watch Veronica Voss. I would say watch Veronica Voss. If you're this far into the podcast, you really should. I would normally say some kind of asterisk about spoilers or whatever, but I actually don't give a shit. A. And B, it doesn't matter. You are still going- I knew how it was going to end. And I was like- It is. It does have a very inevitable ending. So in Veronica Voss, through a chance encounter, a sports journalist meets up with an actress who, during the war, was a very popular star. But now that the war has ended and she's not nearly as successful and she's kind of- fading and we find out that she's under the care of this doctor who's basically keeping her addicted to painkillers with the eventual plan of sucking her dry of all of her earnings and her estate and veronica sort of sees this doctor as like her only real confidant and then since this guy who gets involved with veronica purely by chance he's a journalist he kind of tries to save her and he also tries to like expose the clinic that the doctor's working out of for what they're doing and of course this being a fassbender film and him being something of a good person he fails at that he's trying so hard to save this woman who is is so far gone at this point in the film where like she is so dependent upon these drugs that she doesn't know how to cope without them and she is just losing all her money to this doctor who's taking all her money and stuff it does show love as being exceptionally transactional because there's almost a sort of almost a sort of romantic like 
Yeah. Relationship between Dr. Katz and between Veronica. There's like a homoeroticism to it that's like really... Because it's Fassbender, why wouldn't there be? And that's something that really sticks out in the film. And also the thing that sticks out for me in the film is just her office is just all white. Like I said, no grays in the film, I swear to God. It's like all white. You just hear this like loud country music playing while you're in this office. It's an absolute nightmare of a film. And that's why it's like a horror film, basically, is how I describe it, is because it's so... It's terrifying. You feel so, like, viscerally bad watching it. If, like, a monster showed up, you wouldn't be that surprised, basically, because of this mood, which is so, like, dry. Like, the whole film feels almost drained as, of, of any of those grays, where it's just this, like pure kind of black and white world that is like so clinical and so devoid of of anything yeah devoid of like any kind of any outside it. and the one other bit that i actually really like in the film is the bit where this the sports journalist when he's talking to one of his co-workers and she's like oh didn't you know she was a favorite of joseph goebbels and he says oh but that isn't true da, 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 da. and she said oh that's what she'd want you to believe and i think that also gets at a certain ambiguity in the film it's interesting is fassbender basically making us feel empathy for this nazi sympathizer yeah basically he is and i think that's what's kind of uncomfortable about the movie also at the same time it's really interesting that fassbender i mean he was never obviously shy about like the implications of german's history but he only made a few films i mean he only made one film that was actually set during not after but during world war ii during the nazi regime and that was lily marlene which is oft regarded as a minor work of his while these films are probably his most major works that like are clearly touching upon the war and they all take place after it and i have to mention that he was born in may of 1945 which sort of he's basically touching upon directly what followed his birth in german history which now he himself has become a part of yeah and i think that's part of the, the film is really unsettling for that reason that it, you are at the same time you are sympathizing with this person who was who is set into the film to have like basically had sex with Goebbels, basically and at the same time it's um so heartbreaking and so horrifying at the same time it's very complicated and i think that's why it works so well but also it's just on it's just so visceral at the same time when i rewatched this i found myself empathizing a lot with robert or like i found myself sort of fascinated by his character because he's like you just watch and watch and watch as he tries to do this like hopeless thing yeah and he's told by everyone that like oh this is hopeless you can't actually do anything about this you can't you're going to be destroyed by her by the husband she's basically directly told don't even try doing this in in fassbender films there are so few genuinely good people as supporting characters and i mean robert isn't robert isn't a great person by any stretch of the imagination he does cheat on his girlfriend friend kind of and gets her killed kind of but like he is not someone who is actively trying to hurt veronica which he's basically the only person in the film who gives a shit he's motivated by a compassion for her him and his girlfriend and then his girlfriend only through proxy the, the, and she ultimately dies for as you, you're bringing up i think about maria braun and lola and like i do not get this emotional but with like, like veronica vaught i'm like 
I could barely even talk about it without crying and like I did not think this would happen but like it's just such an emotionally riveting film and like it's so goddamn heartbreaking and of course I feel like I can't I mean it's impossible this was also it must be said the last film that Fassbender directed to be released in his lifetime so in a way kind of one of his last films of course this film after a whole incredible career this was the film of his that won the golden bear which is the top award at the berlin film festival and i like it just feels like they're finally sort of acknowledging him and then he immediately just dies before his next film his final film Corel sees the light of day and obviously like the, the fact that his final film that he was alive to release is about someone who in the end dies of a drug overdose and is an addict when of course we we all know the Fassbinder lore he was brutally addicted to drugs and died of a drug overdose like like a couple of months after Veronica Voss was released it just sort of adds that extra layer and a lot of Fassbinder's work feels very predictive of this rather inevitable death. And the ending where she's just locked in there, just left to die, it's just... It's haunting, like it's, it's nightmarish to just imagine dying alone with no one to help you. And that essentially is what happened to Fassbinder. No one got home to the apartment that he was staying in until he was already dead. Like, Julianne Lorenz, who was, like, Fassbinder's editor, she edited, I believe, all three of these movies. Definitely edited Veronica Voss. And she was also, like, his sort of caretaker at this point. She leaves the house, and then she gets back at, like, four in the morning, and, and Fassbinder is just dead. Like, like, that terrifies me. I remember I was almost having, like, nightmares about that for months after I first read his biography it's just it's devastating yeah i think like the one thing with voss also is the thing that makes it more emotionally devastating is that it's also flashing between her kind of fantasy her kind of dream world in between that where she sings the the dean martin song memories are made of this which is like in its original song is just you know kind of cheesy you know there's also that sort of dissonance in fassbender's life because on the one hand he did just win the golden bear for this film on the other hand he's like dying basically like i don't know if you've seen the vendors documentary room 666 but it's basically vendors interviews something like 12 filmmakers and he asks them like you know their thoughts on the state of films it's pretty interesting what some of them have to say godard is in it among others antonioni is in it spielberg is in it and basically it was like filmed while he was at Cannes in 1982 and fassbinder was one of the filmmakers interviewed by the time that vendors got around to like editing the film Fassbinder had already died it's horrifying how like suddenly it happened yeah and it does really you do get an actual sense of it in the film like a sort of awareness of his own mortality in Veronica Voss in particular obviously it just hits I, I'm, a, I'm about to just cry thinking about it, like, it I mean it's I'm very like emotional about Fassbender obviously yeah so like it's just so tragic you just kind of uh, 
it's uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm really so sorry to our listeners because like last week was like a lot funnier. This week we're a lot more serious. I mean, usually I can joke about Fassbender, but I'm feeling incredibly solemn right now. It's very sobering and very tragic. I genuinely adore this movie. It's one of my favorites. I believe it's one of Fassbender's masterworks. I feel like at some point I could view Maria Braun and Lola in the same esteem, but I currently, like, Veronica Voss, it's just one of his most exceptional films, and it's just so goddamn tragic and obviously his personal life i mean you can barely talk about fassbender without talking about his personal life these films i feel like they're not impersonal obviously because they do thematically touch on a lot of his fixations but you don't get as strong a sense of like what was going on in his life as he was making these films as you do from say in a year of 13 moons but with veronica voss you absolutely get that sense yeah and one reason probably for the lack of somewhat less of a sense of the personal fixations is these films are all co-written obviously the marriage of maria braun came out the same year well not the same year but it came out right after in a year of 13 moons which was just it's this devastatingly personal film and the marriage of maria braun it actually had like financing from like a real company not just one that Fassbender co-run and it had a bunch of co-writers and it had a producer and it was like a mainstream sort of successful film so obviously he can't make it all about how he's like addicted to drugs and how he drove two of his boyfriends to suicide or whatever. He was of course doing comical amounts of cocaine as Maria Braun was being made which some of the films formal choices you kind of get a sense of that yeah the total audacity of the opening and the ending it's just kind of insane and that's to say nothing about the visual splendor in lola or in veronica voss yeah veronica voss is like i can only compare it to it's like watching like nosferatu almost at points if that makes sense as a comparison it's it's like a gothic I was not as stunned watching Nosferatu as I was watching Veronica Voss, and I watched Nosferatu in a theater with live accompaniment, and it didn't affect me half as much as watching Veronica Voss on a crappy DVD in my house does. There's there's a there's a gothic horror. Like that's I guess what I'm getting at here, like a sense of being trapped. I definitely see that. It's maybe a strange comparison, but it's so beautiful. Whenever I think about it, I just get sad. I can think about Maria Braun and Lola and not get sad but then I cannot talk about Veronica Voss without just being utterly heartbroken other Fassbinder films I can talk about without being heartbroken but like this one is just impossible not to almost cry thinking about and part of that is just the personal factors obviously his life is just so turbulent and so tragic and at least for me it's impossible not to get caught up in Fassbinder as a character almost more so than some of his films in and of itself like you, you even like 40 years after he died beyond the grave he's like a ghost it's hauntological in a sense i think like all of the films are just 
brutal. They all convey, even without the backstory. Watching this woman just die and have people try to help her and have none of it really amount. Yeah, Maria also dies, but her death is more of a spiritual one. Yeah. Or at least the death that happens to her over the film. Like her soul is sort of withered away as she becomes more entrenched in this capitalist hellscape. Yeah. While you are literally watching Veronica Voss die and like the one person who's trying to help her basically has no power to versus basically all the authorities who are sort of just sucking the life out of her. There's a scene in Veronica Voss where Robert and his girlfriend are talking to this health guy and they're basically saying, hey, I think this doctor is getting people addicted to morphine and then letting them kill themselves and stealing their estate. And the doctor's like, oh, well, what can you do if we give people enough sleeping pills to kill themselves and they kill themselves because they are hoarding them to kill themselves? Not much we could do. And then the second that Robert and his girlfriend leave, he calls the doctor and he's like, they're on to you. It's like, no one fucking cares. The entire system is sort of set up to kill these people, basically. It's just so exceptionally bleak. In a lot of films that are very, like, sad, obviously, there is a sense of kind of a possible redemptiveness. Well, like, as you're saying with, like, Maria Braun, she dies, but it's a kind of spiritual release. Yeah, well, with Veronica, it's like... Watching someone just slowly be ground and spit out before you, basically, it's just... It's just inevitable and harrowing and fuck. This is just, it's just such a brutal film. The other bit that I think about a lot with this is the bit with the brooch, which she asks for the money for it. And like, you don't really realize it at the time, but like after you realize, holy shit, she's just trying to be like slightly extend her life by doing this. She's literally just trying to have one small piece of jewelry that's not, she's just trying to have one small aspect of her life that's not controlled even if it's something as mundane as a brooch. Yeah, and the fact that she then, like, immediately tries to return it and then use the money so she can, like, basically have more to give so she doesn't, like, just get left to die. It's just brutal. And the thing is, you don't really realize it at first how that that's what she's doing. Like, you're just like, okay, this is kind of eccentric of her. Oh, weird lady doing weird shit. You think, oh, maybe she just wants this glamorous thing. And then as you watch the rest of the movie, you realize, oh, fuck. She was doing this because she needed money. And, like, once that hits, you're just like, Jesus Christ. It's absolutely unreal. And then, like, the bit where the police come and she basically just acquiesces. Where, like, the police ask her and she's like, oh, I've never seen this person before. The scene where, like, Robert just breaks into the clinic and he says, I'm going to save her. And he's, like, treated as just this absolute raving madman is devastating. And, like, the other character in the film who's at least remotely not exploiting Veronica is her husband, or her ex-husband, I should say, who's basically saying she's too far gone. Like, there's nothing we can do. It's just crushing. I don't think there's a film I've ever seen that has, like, affected me that way. Like, it's genuinely one of probably the greatest films I've ever seen. Like, Yeah, it's, like, one of my favorite Fassbenders, which the ones that are my favorite changed, like, the weather. But this is 
fairly consistently among his masterpieces. And people hold Maria Braun in high esteem. And obviously I don't dislike the film, but it's like nowhere near as good as Veronica Voss. Yeah, I really like Maria Braun. I think it's a very, very good film. I think it's a very good melodrama. It doesn't have the same visceral connect. Yeah. I don't have the same visceral emotional reaction to it. I don't know. Yeah, I also really like Lola. I adore Lola also. I think Gwen likes Lola more than I do. Yeah, I like Lola quite a bit. I think Lola is a bit colder to touch than Veronica Voss. I don't feel as much watching Lola. Maria Braun and Lola are both films to think about, and Veronica Voss is a film to feel. Maria Braun is more of a film to feel than Lola is. You think and feel Maria you think Lola and then you just feel Veronica. Yeah, I kind of admire the sort of like cold to the touch nature of Lola. It's very interesting that Lola is shot in this candy colored sort of pastel bisexual lighting before bisexual lighting type of look. And then I think Argento had that first. Uh, to let's be real. Argento-esque. This kind of bright technicolors. Of... And then like it's just cold and intellectual. Yeah, I think it's probably the most avant-garde of the three, almost. It's sort of colors and imagery kind of supersede plot in Lola, almost. Yeah, Lola is one of Fassbender's smarter films, if that makes sense, to the point where it's on a level that most people simply cannot comprehend because he's hiding it behind these candy visuals. It is probably tempting. I wouldn't be shocked if there are people who would say that Lola is like a really kind of stupid movie or whatever, like they'd read it as kind of vapid. Oh, no, no, that's that's a wrong reading. But yeah, that'd be that'd be very wrong. While Maria Braun is, there's intellectualization being done, but it is also fairly straightforwardly a melodrama, while like Lola is actively detaching, while Maria Braun is kind of neutral and Veronica Voss is just very attaching. And it's very interesting how different these three films are in terms of like feel. In spite of them all being in the same trilogy and they having these certain thematic preoccupations, obviously, they all approach it in such radically different ways. And that's what I think makes them such good movies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, look at me, the fucking Fassbender guy, and I'm only getting super passionate about one of these films. We should probably also talk a little bit about the sort of reception of the films when they came out. Maria Braun was like, it was a huge hit. It was the first of Fassbender's films to really do well, like in the States and like in North America. He was coming to press conferences. There's this story about him in Montreal. <laughs> Where, like, he says something that, like, all journalists are prostitutes. I'm trying to find a quote right now. It was from about the reception of it. I'm just pulling it up. I DM'd it to you, like, on Friday. So I'm just scrolling up. It's on my phone. My phone's upstairs. Lola was, like, people were more mixed on it. And the thing with Lola is that, like, it came out in 1981. That's when it released at, like, festivals. But by the time it came out to an American audience, he had already died just because of, like, the sort of weight between European festival releases and American-wide releases. It's like how nobody saw Drive My Car until earlier this year, even though it came out in 2021. The same thing happened 
happened with Lola, basically. So it's like another film from the late Rainer Werner Fassbender. They spend half the review eulogizing Fassbender, even though during his life, these critics were like, ugh. And I can't also help but feel like the reason these movies are probably more liked, this might be a cynical reading, <laughs> is that they aren't as gay. That might be cynical of me, but I feel like based on the stuff you've talked about, with critical reactions, with audience reactions even to the Fassbender movies that have more kind of explicit homosexuality to them, there is a kind of sort of snicker that sort of seems to show up in like the audiences almost. You know what I- Oh my god, the reception to Corral, it's- I think Quirrell is one of Fassbender's best films. It does kind of have the Lola thing going on where you get caught up in the visual splendor, but what's lost in Quirrell is less the ideological theme and more just any semblance of coherence. You watch it and you have a very sort of at least I do because I'm dumb. You have a vague idea of the plot and you have enough information to follow it, but like you're just so caught up in like the world of this film that like you're not even thinking about what's going on. You're thinking about like the space and dreamlike sphere that the film occupies. Just this like sweaty, erotic, homosexual sort of fever dream it does feel almost like when you die your life sort of flashes before your eyes it almost feels like we are seeing that of Fassbender we are seeing like his manic drugged out dying dream in a sense it's interesting how Fassbender basically had three quote final films you have Veronica Voss which was the last film that he was alive to like say this is my movie and the last film he was alive to like see the reception to and then you have Kamikaze 1989 which was his last on-screen appearance as an actor and you just see like I, I love Kamikaze 1989 I think it's a lot of fun but you just see how like you see he's in horrible shape he's kind of sleepwalking through some of his lines he's playing like this character who's sort of this jaded cynical at the end of his rope police detective who's just like very tired is the best word to describe him and his overall demeanor and you sort of get that sense from Fassbender even as he continues to push himself through his work like literally as he was dying he was writing notes for a film about Rosa Luxemburg this notebook with like the notes for this film was like found right next to the body along with like a cigarette hanging from his lips and then with Quirrell you almost get the sense that like it is absolutely after he has died and this is like the last message from his ghost before he passes on to another world. And that's probably in part why that film, weirdly, like as, as you've talked about before, it was like nominated for like Razzies and stuff when it was in the United States. It was just a testament to how fucking stupid the Razzies are. Thankfully, it wasn't actually nominated for like worst picture or worst cinematography. It was just worse musical score. Which is a really weird fucking thing to dislike about a movie. Um, yeah, it's really it's really weird to like pinpoint. I've that. watched movies that have scores that like I don't think anything of, I guess. I can't think of a single movie I've watched where like I've thought the score is actually bad. It's either a score that I finish the movie and then go to Soul Seek and download so I can listen to it on loop for the next ten days. 
or I just don't think about it. Like, okay, I just want to put this out. Also, on their worst score, they put Yentl, the Barbara Streisand movie. That's fucking stupid. That's a good movie and it has a good soundtrack. What the fuck do these people know? I feel like there's just sort of a hatred for musical numbers. The songs for Corel that were nominated for worst song. It was like the song that Jean Moreau sings. Imagine disliking Jean Moreau. Actually, two songs from the movie Corel were nominated for worst original song. Each Man Kills the Thing He Loves and Young and Joyful Bandit, which just feels so cruel. Yeah, like because this is a stupid and cruel award. What I was going to talk about a little bit that I kind of want to get towards is the sort of, at the time, and Fassbender's always films always seem to have a very kind of mixed feminist reaction. Mixed to hostile, probably one should say. Oh, the feminist reaction to Petra von Kahn. Yeah, the feminist and kind of queer reaction to Petra von Kant at large. It's sort of interesting to think about now because I think most people who are like gay or trans or whatever, like us, really like Petra von Kant. I should read this a little bit. This is from a book called Women and New German Cinema. I found this book a while back and I went to the index for it. And it, obviously I saw how many times Fassbender comes up. You gotta. That's what I do with literally every book. It's mostly about, like, female New German cinema filmmakers, and we definitely do need to do episodes on various ones of them. Oh, yeah. I mean, Helma Sanders-Brahms is great. Marguerite von Trott is great. A bunch of shit is on Criterion for right now from early, or Tinder, however you pronounce her name. I That would be probably fun to talk about, but, like... Oh, yeah. For the sake of this episode... This was me scanning the index of women in New German cinema and seeing this bit, which was, this was not only a subjective impression on the part of filmmakers, but was one shared by viewers. When reviewing Saunders Brahms' Germany Pale Mother, Linda Christmas contrasted it with Fassbunder's The Marriage of Maria Braun, which explores the same period of German history. To see the films on consecutive days showed all too clearly that there is indeed a male and female way of viewing the world. And then later, there's a, Another filmmaker who they talked to who said, I am convinced that men have a totally different psychic and social imprints to women. They consequently have totally different ways of viewing things, but not the only possible or true way. Therefore, of course, women produce different art if they work consciously. So, like, there is, like, across this, a sort of subtext that... It's very gender essentialist. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's a very, like, essentialist discourse going on here where it's, like... And we're really acting like a gay man doesn't understand women. <laughs> yeah, but also, like, I think this sort of leads to a... You're totally allowed and totally within your rights to be critical of The Marriage of Maria Braun, for the record. I don't want to be like, oh, it's a perfect movie and you should never there's anything bad about it no but you aren't allowed to say anything bad about veronica voss yeah you aren't allowed to say anything bad about veronica voss if you say anything bad about veronica voss you're getting blocked reported blocked reported the cops are outside it's, it's really funny to read people online who are like wow the plot with the doctor is so unrealistic and it's like that fucking happened to people in a sense fossbinder got fucked over by doctors because he was like addicted to quaaludes or as they were called in Germany, Mandrax, and they were taken off the market because, you know, the whole quaalude concerns were happening. So he he gets basically forced to switch to these barbiturates, which anyone who's read the Wikipedia page for Fassbinder knows how this ends. Quaaludes also famously dramatized in the Albert Brooks film, Modern Romance, at one point, which is also a very good film, but a very different movie. But I think a lot of the feminist reaction and a lot of the queer reaction to Fassbender that was negative at the time has probably aged poorly, I'd say. 
Particularly the queer reaction, like, I think. Like, Fox and His Friends, which is a beautiful, incredible film. People called it homophobic because it portrayed gay people as bad. When, like, what the film was doing, really, it was essentially portraying this whole gay milieu. And, like, when you have 20 people some of them are going to be kind of shitty. And that's basically what Fox and his friends is doing with gay people. It's never insinuating that like this is inherent to homosexuality or that all gay people are like this. It is saying there are people who are like this who are gay and it's dangerous even to forget that just because you have your sexuality in common with them, you fall in with them thinking this is someone who I can trust when it's not. It's like that ends up being the downfall of thought. They're not really his friends, spoiler alert. And this is obviously a discourse that we are, are too familiar with nowadays about representation that I don't really give a shit about, to be like very frank. I don't like talking about it because it's so fucking well, the thing that that's interesting with, like, the Fox and his friends' reputation is that, like, what the fuck has changed since then in terms of respectability politics? Yeah, it's gotten worse, probably. When you have a film that's made by a gay director that sort of has a remotely negative portrayal of characters who are gay, people will say, this is homophobic. And that's literally what happened with Fox and his friends. That's what happened with Petra von Kant. Although, to be fair, Fassbinder is not a lesbian. As far as we know. I feel like he liked men too much to be a lesbian. Fassbinder is one of the few gay man AGPs. This is my new theory. <laughs> I mean, he, there was sort of an identification with the feminine. and Yeah, yeah, yeah. That That is more just... That's also a gay thing, obviously. Especially then. I don't know if you actually watched that documentary or... I did not actually watch that documentary. I feel bad. <laughs> well... Fassbinder basically every man he worked with and this wasn't just the gay ones either they had a nickname and it is kind of funny that like you'll have someone like Mihail Balaos who had I forget what his nickname was it was something like Lily or some shit like that and like all of these people he like gave a nickname and in Fox and his friends characters will refer to each other as they'll refer to each other with female pronouns which is like something that was just a thing in gay culture of the time yeah 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 obviously the the gender and sexual relationship of the time are in a lot of ways really fraught and not even in the 1970s not always reducible to how we think of them now for, for various obvious reasons and that's probably in part why as we were saying like the, the films that are directly from the povs of women tend to be the most popular or at least some of the most like well-liked Fassbender films is because there isn't that kind of there isn't like a depiction of like male homosexuality in these films whereas that's a bit more yeah yeah but there is sort of an identification with female suffering i mean obviously with these three films but even when you look at something like Martha or Petra von Kahn, Petra von Kahn, and what's interesting is like, it's basically gender swapped autobiographical about his own sort of relationships, his like fraught, sort of turbulent, intense relationships. Cause like he wrote this right after like his relationship with Gunter Kaufman, who he remarkably remained on good terms with, but their relationship exceptionally turbulent. Fassbinder just fell head over heels with Gunter Kaufman. He bought him like four Lamborghini 
monkey knees that he proceeded to just smash up over the course of a year. Like, he was just spoiling him with, like, gifts and affection. And then their relationship just sort of ended and they just sort of kept working together. Like, Gunter Kaufman, he's in all three of these films. He's this recurring presence. And it's it's just, he's great in all three of them. Yeah, Gunter Kaufman is, like, haunting all three of these movies. I love his scene in The Marriage of Maria Braun. That might be my favorite, one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie where he just shows him. Yeah, hello, guys and dolls. When he just shows up. And he's like, hey. Well, he just shows up in all of them. It's so good. He is so fucking great. He's an exceptional actor. His performance in Quirrell is like one of the best in a film full of incredible performances. And people like mock the dialogue in Quirrell because they're cowards and idiots. And it's like people think that, I mean, it is like awkward and stilted, but it works for like the world this film is created. And it has a sort of like charm of like PS2 JRPG dialogue. That's what, <laughs> that's a good comparison, actually. That's what the dialogue in Quirrell sounds like. And it's dialogue that in subtitles with the audio in a different language so you're not actually hearing these lines being spoken you're reading them they come across as fine but said aloud they become awkward that's something i find really fascinating about just foreign films in general i would play a fassbender uh, jared i don't know how you would do that but someone could do that i think like if it would be like a square it would be like a ps1 square game i uh, that would probably be like a great game you know in this level you have to escape your manipulative husband <laughs> it would be fun <laughs> you never know quick time event of the ending of merchant of four seasons where you're like smashing x to drink yourself to death <laughs> You're just describing a David Cage game. I hope you know that. <laughs> David Cage. David Cage is not that talented to do this. This is an anti-David Cage podcast. Is David Cage the Fassbender of gaming? Oh, God. No, he's a homophobe. He's actually a homophobe. So, like, that's the important distinction. That's true. But, I mean, arguably Fassbender was homophobic as well, even though he was, like... David Cage interview where he's, like, I don't think that they believed where he's, like, I don't make games for, like, women or fags or something like that. That's the opposite of Fassbender. He makes movies exclusively for women and fags. It's entertainment for gay men and bitches only. You're a straight person. I don't think you can get Fassbender. At the risk of engaging in the same essentialism we made fun of a little earlier. I mean, it's not that straight people can't get Fassbender. It's that I do feel like part of the reason why his reception was so mixed was because he was someone who came from a sort of very gay social scene. And then he was integrating into almost a very heterosexual world of, like, the festival circuit of not necessarily mainstream, but, like... Mainstream enough. Outside of, like, a queer avant-garde. Mainstream by 70s standards, certainly, when, like, you could talk about Fellini on sitcoms. Yeah, outside of, like, queer feminist world that did exist. Oh, yeah, unquestionably. And was very, like, insurgent, obviously, at the time. There was, for the first time, like, in the 60s and 70s, like, a real, like, women's film movement. And I think that also explains part of the hostility towards Fassbender from a lot of the people who were also doing things that were kind of similar to him, is that he wasn't really... He wasn't a woman. Um, I mean, arguably, there's three major filmmakers of the new German cinema, and those are Fassbinder, those are Werner Herzog, and those are Wim Wenders, and it's really interesting how much Fassbinder sort of stands out 
among them because he's just so much more like turbulent in his life than these others are i mean the herzog kinski stuff does sometimes approach but nowhere near as much and also they didn't have sex that we know of that we know of they probably did herzog x kinski fanfiction.net i feel like most director actor collaborations there's a bit of like romantic tension going on yeah, there's a certain homosociality to acting. They kind of develop a relationship much like that of an old married couple. Yeah, where you sometimes want to kill them. You sometimes want to kill them on the set of Aguirre, The Wrath of God. We've all been there. And yeah, I think all this talk of like queer cinema is good because it's officially Pride Month. We should. One thing about the marriage of Maria Braun, bringing it back to what the episode is about, is I feel like that's kind of one where Fassbender's personal preoccupations as a gay man do come into play with the character of Bill because like during the sex scenes Bill they're focused on him oh Hannah's here and we'll frame her in a way that looks interesting but that's not like in the sense of she remotely turns the director on and that's kind of why I think Fassbender was gay and not bisexual because like look at hannah i mean yeah she's quite good looking like the fact that fassbender never even so much as flirted with her says something she is particularly gorgeous um in uh the, the bitter tears of petra von Kahn, i should say that's the hottest movie where no one takes off their clothes it's very interesting because it's a film that i feel like if a straight man directed it it would be like so sleazy and over sexualized but like these women are horny for each other in the way that gay men are horny for each other. Yeah, it's if it was directed by a man, it would be like a Jess Franco movie. Because the characters obviously are just substitutes for Fassbender and Kaufman. So like, they're sort of... Sometimes lesbians just are gay men to each other. That's basically what The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant is about. Sometimes being a lesbian is about being a gay man. And sometimes being a gay man is about being a lesbian. We all know this. I think, like, across these three films, you really do get, as much as, as you said, they aren't as personal. I do think they give a very good, like, grounding point in something that is, like, accessible enough that I think I could... The Marriage of Maria Braun was, like, a film that played festivals and, like, sold out festivals. Totally makes sense, because it's so good. Yeah, and it was, like, a sort of mainstream accessible Fassbender. I told my mom like several years ago now that I was getting into Fassbender and she was like, oh, that name sounds familiar. And, and then she's like, oh yeah, The Marriage of Maria Braun. I remember watching that. Like this was a film that was like huge while like a lot of his other stuff is other than Ollie Fear Eats the Soul, which certainly was like well-known at the festival circuit. And obviously now like retroactively, obviously you have Petra von Kant, you have Fox and his friends, you have The Merchant of Four Seasons. These films are now being changed championed or even like world on a wire is probably now it's the third most watched one on letterboxd i should say what's interesting about world on a wire is that it was like not available for many years because it like aired on german television and then like i don't know what the fuck happened to it but then like janice films and the criterion collection got their hands on it the exact same thing happened with eight hours don't make a day 
I'm really glad they put it out. Obviously, you should be glad whenever, like, an old film gets a release, but, like... The more Fassbender movies that are easy to see, the better. Yeah. World on a Wire is one that I would, like, if you are a certain kind of person who was reading Mark Fisher about five years ago, like I was, it would be a film of interest to that. But I also just think it's a very good film in general. Like, probably are going to do a lot more Fassbender content over the course of... I was thinking, actually, specifically of Love is Colder Than Death, Gods of the Plague, and The American Soldier as a look at his sort of earlier stuff. Because we're mostly talking about, like, his late period, although... These three films of his late period are the ones I would say that have the most in common with his middle period. And like, if you were to split the periods in his career, you basically have the two major events in his life, which were him discovering Douglas Sirk and him discovering cocaine. Those should be the two main events in every person's life. Those are the two things that everyone should try to do. At the very least, Douglas Sirk. I guess there's some bad things that could happen with cocaine. <laughs> Not like it killed him or anything. Douglas Sirk. I don't think a lot of bad things happen with Douglas Sirk. You can very wholesomely watch Douglas Sirk. You can watch them with your dad sometimes. Sirk outlived Fassbender, actually. Which is an insane thing to think about. Douglas Sirk wrote an obituary for Rainer Werner Fassbender. That is the most insane and tragic thing to me. You could watch a Sirk movie with your dad. I don't think you could watch like a Fassbender movie with your dad. I have watched several Fassbender <laughs> movies with my dad. Okay, like a normal dad. Your dad is cool. We watched Veronica Voss. We watched... Ollie Fury's The Soul, we watched Fox and His Friends. I watched, uh, in, in, in Dad's Cinema Corner, I watched the John Ford movie, uh, Young Mr. Lincoln with my dad, and he didn't like it, I should, should say. What kind of a dad doesn't like John Ford? I've shown him a couple, he liked most of them, he didn't like this one, I was really taken aback by that, that he, he wasn't into it. I think Young Mr. Lincoln's a good film. I think Fassbender, if I can ask, like, a question, perhaps, that I should have asked at the beginning, what was it that drew you to Fassbender? What was, like, the, what's the story there? It's so fucking mundane, actually. It's, I literally just one day decided I'm gonna watch Fox and His Friends tonight. How did you, like, learn about Fox and His Friends? I should probably ask instead. Well, I sort of learned about, like, the new German cinema, because I was actually, there was a period when I was very into vendors. Oh, okay, so it was- But I was into his, like, not late, late stuff, but, like, stuff like Paris, Texas, and Wings of Desire. Like, that stuff I really, really liked. So I watched those, and I was like, oh, this guy's part of a little movement, and oh, Herzog's in that movement, and oh, this Fassbinder fellow's in that movement. Oh, he was bisexual. No, he wasn't, but whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you learn about that, and it was like, oh, he died at the age of 37 of a drug overdose after directing 40 films in 12 years. That's very interesting. Yeah, and then you just watch them all. I feel like it's really tempting to just watch all of his movies. I mean, I did, and it actually only took me a couple of months to get through his whole filmography. I've seen five now, and now I really feel the need to, like, go out and watch every single one. With Fassbender, like, in particular now, I'm just like, okay, I need to watch every single movie he ever made. There's something about him that just draws you in, and I feel like watching Fox and His Friends as my first Fassbender 
did a part of that because like you sort of not only fall in love with him as a director but you fall in love with him like as a screen presence because he's just so adorable and charismatic and fox and his friends you just want to like curl him into a little ball and like squeeze him he's just so cute in that movie and i think that's something else uh with shoe kurt in uh Lola often feels like a surrogate for him. The sort of joyful fat guy who's kind of like manipulating all the women. Maybe that has something to do with Fassbender's self-perception, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh my fucking god. Yeah, no. Because as he's like lifting her, it kind of mirrors that image. This charismatic ugly guy who is like also aware of his status within the system, like Shuker in Lola. Like he's just this exceptionally charismatic guy who's also like incredibly ugly. Honestly, just every picture with like Fossbunder with women is how I do want a man to treat me. I'm just gonna send you like, you've definitely seen this image before. I'm gonna send it into the Skype chat. If there's a picture of Fossbunder I haven't seen before, I'll be surprised. <laughs> I was just looking at pictures of him and it's like, this. This is the ideal relationship. The ideal relationship is a gay man and a woman dating. Yeah, no, and Fassbinder literally did get married to a woman, which is really, really funny. And they divorced, like, less than a year later. And they got on better after being married versus when they were married. Every image of Fassbender with women, it's like, this is the ideal relationship. Bringing it back to these movies, he has his sort of little cameos in both The Marriage of Maria Braun and in Veronica Voss, where he's like sort of just with these women. In Veronica Voss, it's interesting because like he doesn't even say a word. He's just kind of there watching and that's kind of like the role he has as a director. He's like, you know, just sort of making women suffer on screen and then watching it. He's just perfect in these films. Like his little roles in both of them as like the sales guy in Maria Braun. He's so funny in The Marriage of Maria Braun. Yeah. I love his dumb little glasses and his stupid little mustache. I love when he's like, oh, you want the collected works of who was it again? I'm trying to remember. I mean, she's like, looks don't burn long and they don't provide heat. But he's like, suit yourself. He's a great actor too. And like, he didn't act that much. But when he does, it's exceptional to watch. Like even in Kamikaze 89, where like, you can tell he's got a couple months left at best because he's been burning the candle at both ends for 10 years and he just looks like shit. He's still so much fun to watch. Like he's incredibly charismatic in his like dumb leopard print suit, just sort of fat guy doing shitty parkour, just like running around exhausted. It's just, it's so much fun. He's just, you can't help but like him, even if he's evil. That's probably... The sentence that sums up Fassbender more than anything else. It's like Lola, in the same sense. It's like, you can't help but like this, even though it's evil. Like, it's morally reprehensible, some of the shit he's done. And I feel like the fact that he's dead does kind of help you distance yourself from that. While with, like, certain alive artists who are bad people, there's much more apprehension towards them. But basically everyone who Fassbender has hurt is either dead or old enough to have long since moved past it. It's not like Woody Allen. And also he was never like, he wasn't actually a sex pest. He was just emotionally, he was just a Gemini with borderline personality disorder. <laughs>
<laughs> he couldn't help it. It also helps that it has a very consistent body of work where, like, every film... He made a lot of movies, and they're all really good, or, like, all at least interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, not every one of his films is for everyone, and I do feel like you can reasonably write off most of his early stuff but do keep in mind he made 10 films in two years which insane productivity we record a podcast every like two weeks at least that's our plan and we haven't even followed through on that yeah because gwen got locked out of her apartment yeah i locked myself out of my house like last week we were gonna record this in the interest of transparency i got locked out of my own we were going to release it on fassbender's birthday which was yesterday but instead we're releasing it as our first episode in pride month yeah. so we're gonna have another pride month episode that's about a heterosexual Rainer Werner Fassbender, obviously. Where we talk about someone who wrote a book, and that book became adapted into a film that was one of Fassbender's top ten movies. We're not gonna say who it is, I want to keep this down under wrap, but you can figure it out probably if, if you've talked to us. I think I might have even mentioned it on Twitter, but... I, I've like told everyone in my life about it. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be great next week, no, two weeks from now, because... I love that for Pride Month, we're doing just heterosexuality. I'm thinking about, like, the directors we have, like, slated, and it's just, like... Camp straight men, mostly. The two straightest men on the planet. I do think, like, over the next bit, we are going to keep asking the question, is it possible for a straight man to make a camp? I feel like that's going to be one of our overarching questions. That is definitely going to be a question that next week is going to be all about. Yeah, we're going to be like, okay, is this possible? Is this a night? Is this a dream? Is it possible? And also a reverse, someone who hates women. Unlike this week, where we have someone who loves women. <laughs> Platonic next time, we have someone who erotically loves women but hates them. So, you know, we get the two extremes. Which way, man? Which way, Western man? You can either be a gay guy who loves women or a straight man who hates women. Those are your two options. And next week, we're talking about a straight man who hates women. I'm going to do the thing again where I say, like, what song you should play. You should definitely end it with Memories Are Made Of This because it's such a beautiful song. It's such a beautiful song. When I decided we were going to do the BRD trilogy, I really did not think that we could end the episode any other way. What's funny, obviously, the Dean Martin version, which I listened to after, is like just kind of cheesy. Like, it's not... I didn't even know it was a Dean Martin song. I thought it was just some shit Peter Robin made up. Yeah, like, it's a kind of cheesy-ish Dean Martin song. And I think, like, a lot of great films, great film can recontextualize a song like that in a very, like, particular way. Another example, obviously, much more famous is Blue Velvet and David Lynch. Or even In Dreams in Blue Velvet has the same kind of thing where it's like this kind of cheesy pop song can kind of become this emotionally moving song even though it's like kind of shit i mean in dreams is actually a good song i shouldn't like make fun of it but like it's also proving that there's a degree of separation that's one between Brenner Werner Fassbender and Jerry Lewis. I just want to point this out. On the topic of Jerry Lewis, there is actually a Jerry Lewis film that's like shown in a Fassbender film. Oh, what? What? Where? In A Year of 13 Moons, there's a part where she goes to Gottfried John's building and he's doing the routine from a Jerry Lewis film. It all comes back to Jerry Lewis. If you're talking about European art cinema in like the mid 20th century. It truly does come down to Jerry Lewis. It all comes back to Jerry Lewis somehow. It all comes back to Martin and Lewis somehow, somewhere. 
So here is thank you so much for listening. This one felt like an open wound a little bit when we were doing Veronica Voss, but you know, it was good. Thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you for listening. Have a very nice day, night, wherever you are. Happy Pride also. Happy Pride. To our probably 90% kids. Yep. A lovely Pride, whatever you do. Happy Pride, Mom. Have lots of sex. Have lots of sex. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're going to talk about this. Have a nice. Have a nice. <laughs> Thank you.